Hey guys, we are in the book of Luke, and so I encourage you to turn there with me, if you would, please. Luke chapter 9, and we are just continuing in our study of the book of Luke. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one at a row near you, so please ask your neighbor for one, as we will use it as our guide for our time today. We love to let the Bible tell us um, God's heart and mind, that's where we know it the clearest, and so uh, we are plugging through this dear book and seeing the wonders of Jesus as we read word by word through the pages. Now today we're going to look at verses uh, 28 through 45, and so I'm just going to read verses uh, 28 through 36 for us right now, but we are going to go 28 through 45. The Word of God says this. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. And his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory. And the two men who stood with him, and as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Not knowing what he said. And he was saying these, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Let's pray. Father, I ask. I ask that we would not only read of those who caught a glimpse of your glory. But that by your mercy. We too would catch that glimpse. Father I pray that we would see you high and lifted up. I ask father that you would. Come over us and wash us clean. As our sin clouds our time together. We need to see you. And we're thankful that your mercy is not dependent upon our performance. And so we ask that although we trip and fall and our foot slips regularly, we ask that you would come and console and encourage and build up. Father, I pray, I pray that we would run after you. 
and that we would find you as the great encouragement, the great sustainer that you are. So in this moment, teach us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I remember in my dating years of my wife that I was willing to sacrifice things that now are a little harder to sacrifice. So you understand the picture, right? When you're madly in love and blinded by beauty, there is this sense of you will go to the heights and you will run to the lengths and you will go to the depths because you love the one that you're going after. You've experienced this before, whether it's in a romantic relationship, whether it's in something that uh, you just really, really want. It could be that thing that you want to purchase, and you know that you can't just spend your money any old way that you want to spend it, so you've got to alter your lifestyle. You've got to try to save up so that then you can get that thing, and you'll sacrifice your candy, you'll sacrifice your desserts, you'll sacrifice these things in order to get that thing. I mean, there were times in my dating when I would drive just really far to see my wife when most of the time going to such lengths were not very desirable for me. I even remember the night that we were supposed to propose, I had it all set up. We were headed to Charleston, South Carolina. Romantic at heart that I am, we were, uh, I was going to surprise her. Now knowing my wife, surprise is not the best plan. So anyway, um, we were headed to Charleston, South Carolina. Everyone in my family knew. We were staying with my aunt who was in Charlotte, and then we were going to take a day trip to Charleston. And so we were on our way. I've had this ring now for about four months, talking about burning a hole in the pocket. It was like, ah, got to get rid of this thing. So we were trucking down to Charleston, and about halfway down, my wife's, well, at that time, my girlfriend, that's weird to say, after 20 years, she started getting sick. And so we're traveling, and I'm just like, you're going to make it through this, right? <laughs> she gets sick. We have to turn around, come back home. We went back to my uh, aunt's house, and I was just, now I was sick, right? She was sick, but I was sick. But it didn't faze me. The next day, she was better. We went back to Charleston, South Carolina. I was not giving up on this one. I'm glad I didn't. But when all these things hit you, and you're just like, no, I am not going to stop. I am going to keep going. Why? Because I felt like it was worth it. I felt like the beauty was greater than the sacrifice. And what we have here in the book of Luke is a picture that says the beauty is greater than the sacrifice. And as we just experience this passage, this passage teaches us some pretty precious things. But what we just read what we just read is three men who saw a glimpse of the glory of God. Now, as we continue through this passage, 
there's three major things that I want to highlight. And there's actually three scenes that we're going to go over. One is the story I just read to you. Sometimes it's called the transfiguration. The next story will be when Jesus encounters a demon-possessed, unclean boy, and he heals him. And then the third story is really, it's a time when Jesus then stops and he tells about his upcoming suffering. We're going to extend a little bit this first part because it's the bulk of the sermon today. And then the last two are kind of application. But here are the three main ideas that I think come out of this text. My prayer has been that God would give us a glimpse of glory and that he would show us beauty that outweighs any sacrifice that we might incur. And so, you'll see it, why I've entitled it as we go. But I believe God wants us to see his majestic glory. And these are the three things. One, we're going to see the majesty of his coming glory. And then the two applications coming out of it will be how we live now in light of that coming glory. It'll be his majesty on display amidst weakness and the majesty of the cross. The majesty of his coming glory, the majesty on display amidst weakness and majesty of the cross. So let's dive in here. The majesty of his coming glory. Glory. In verse 28, it says, Now about eight days after he said these things, and we'll talk about those things here in just a second, he goes up on a mountain to pray. We mentioned this last time before the major events that are happening through the book of Luke. It is clearly stated that Jesus was a praying man, that he would go and he would pray. So we find himself going to a mountain to pray, and as he was praying, his appearance is altered. Literally, it says this, the appearance of his face was other. It was something completely unlike anything they had ever observed. It was other. They had no category. Language falls short of what they were beholding. It was wholly other. His clothing became dazzling white. And what we know this to be is the transfiguration. It is the godness of Jesus veiled in human flesh. The curtain pulled back just a little bit for Peter, James, and John. And what was on the inside kind of came out. This was not just window dressing. This was not just he looked a little different. His holy otherness was coming forth before these people that were before him. He was dazzling and brilliantly white. Resembling this idea of purity. It's speaking of brightness like white light. The idea is many times in the scriptures when it says dazzling white, it is the whiteness that comes from the bolt of lightning throughout the scriptures. It is a flash in the midst of darkness. You get the image. He has entered into our darkness. And yet when the curtain is pulled back, it is so shocking. It is so loud. It is so riveting that he is like a lightning bolt appears on the scene. And then the story only gets a little more 
complicated, a little more astounding. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of Jesus' departure. Why Moses and Elijah? Because as we are told at the end of the book of Luke, the law and the prophets, the law is attributed to Moses. One of the major prophets in the Old Testament is Elijah. That all of the Old Testament scriptures are pointing to one to come. And now Moses and Elijah show up on the scene and they're talking about him. And they're saying about his departure, like this is the one that was to come. This is the one that would suffer and die. Do you know what this word departure actually is? It's the word exodus. They're speaking about what was a major theme throughout the Old Testament. That the wonderful power of God delivered the people of God through the storms of life, parting the Red Sea. What was a destiny for death turned into a pathway to life. And that's exactly what Jesus walks for us. When they speak of his departure, his exodus, they are speaking of his coming death. And his death is a pathway to his coming resurrection. Moses and Elijah are not talking about themselves. They are not talking about days gone by. They are talking about him standing right there and they're speaking about his death and his resurrection. That's what the Old Testament speaks of. It speaks of Jesus. Jesus is the hero of the whole book. He's the focus of the whole thing. And that's why it says they spoke of his departure, which he is about to accomplish at Jerusalem. It was that path to Jerusalem where he walked the Calvary Road. He died on the cross for our sins and he was raised from the dead. Now Peter, verse 32. Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory. And the two men who stood with him. Now, what's interesting right here is the contrast between how Peter responds and what it means that Jesus is better than Moses and Elijah. What does it mean that Jesus is better than Moses and Elijah? Well, the law had one clear function. It was, do this law and you can live. If you can be perfect, completely righteous, then you will have eternal life. And the Old Testament spelled out there was no way, no how anyone could do it. So the law was almost mocking people. It was, it was a sense of you cannot measure up apart from one to come to measure up in your place. I was reading a book by Richard Sibbs called The Bruised Reed. And he says this about how Jesus is better than the law. Here's what he says. For the law requires personal, perpetual, and perfect obedience from the heart, not just outward action, and that under a most terrible curse, because sin has entered the world, right? And so it makes obedience even more difficult. And the law gives no strength. It provides no help in this endeavor. You're on your own. 
It is a severe taskmaster like Pharaoh and Pharaoh's taskmaster requiring the whole tale of bricks and yet giving no straw. Yet Christ comes with blessing after blessing. Even upon those whom Moses had cursed. That means even under those that the law had condemned, Jesus comes with healing balm for those wounds which the law had made, which Moses had made. Do you see the contrast between the law and Jesus? You have the law which says you've got to measure up and it constantly mocks you because you never measure up. And you have Christ who fulfills the law, who is better than Moses and Elijah, who comes and says, you will never measure up. I measured up in your place and I will constantly bless you even though you are steeped in sin. I will be the strength you need to do what I've asked you to do. I will give you my Holy Spirit so that you might walk in righteousness. Do you see the contrast? And now yet, what does Peter seek to do when he kind of wakes up? He seeks to try to work. He seeks to try to do something in order to deal with the situation in front of him. Isn't this like us? The call to sit and worship, many times we take as a call to busyness and activity. But I would be just like Peter in these moments. Listen to how he deals with it. I'm not sure what it is about the mountain, but whenever these people go up on a mountain to pray, they're out like a light. It's kind of what happens at the Garden of Gethsemane. You kind of, you know, go to the garden, they sleep. And now they've gone up on this mountain and all of a sudden they're really sleepy. So we find them that they needed to be awakened heavy with sleep, but they became fully awake and they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Verse 33, and as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we're here, right? It's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And then Luke just kind of adds, he really had no clue what he was saying. It's just like when you get this nervous energy, he's just like, I've got to say something. And so he speaks, and yet he really didn't know what he was saying. He felt out of place. He felt out of place in such brilliance. I was reading an article this week, and in Polk County, which is near Asheville area, there was a milk truck that was driving, driving too fast, missed a turn, overturned and poured 6,000 gallons of milk into the local creek. And it shows this picture of this local creek known as the Green River. (laughs) And it's not so green anymore. It has this milky kind of hue over it. And, you know, the qualification was, you know, humanity will not be uh, will not suffer from this. It will not affect the drinking water, etc. But some fish might get sick. And I'm like, yeah, you better believe it. What happens when you drink a lot of milk and you haven't had it in a while, right? I mean, we're talking about some lactose issues. So they're, they're uh, saying the fish might suffer a little. Now, what is odd if you're driving down and all of a sudden you see milk all over this creek? It's odd because it's not supposed to be there. And Peter is feeling the exact same way. Am I really supposed to be here? Why does he feel this way? Because he is before the glory of God and sinners are not supposed to be there. 
Sinners are not supposed to have that access to the brilliance of God. And how do I know that's what's going on? Because it says Peter was terrified. If you keep reading, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Mark highlights that the reason he spoke what he spoke in Mark chapter 9 was because he was terrified. He was out of place, not knowing where he should be and what was happening around him. And so his only solution was to talk and to offer to do something. Note to self, God does not need us to do anything. When it comes to beholding his glory, he asks us to sit and to soak, to be still before him. One thing Peter did get right is he says, it is good for me to be here, right? It is. It is good for us to be at his feet. And so Peter felt out of place. He felt nervous, offering to do something. And then while the cloud comes over them, verse 35, a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Listen to him. Don't miss this. Who were the Jews supposed to be listening to for obedience? They were supposed to be listening to the law and the prophets and the writings. They were supposed to be listening to their Bible, God's word. Now it's saying Jesus is better than the law and the prophets. Everything was pointing to Jesus. When Moses and Elijah show up on the scene, they talk about Jesus. Jesus is the hero of everything in that book. And now the voice from heaven comes down and says, this is the voice you listen to. It's my voice. It is the voice of my son. Listen to Jesus. In verse 36, it says, and when the voice had spoken, Jesus was seen alone. It's like Moses and Elijah disappear. It's not that the Old Testament is indifferent. It's not that you don't need it. But it's that when the hero is there, all the pointers point you, you want to spend time here. You want to follow the pointers to where they go and you want to rest right there. Jesus was found alone. The Moses and Elijah were no longer there. Peter, James, and John knew exactly in part what this meant and it was Jesus is the one that I obey. Jesus is the one that I worship. And now what was asked of Peter just last sermon, what was asked of Peter earlier in chapter 9 who do you say that I am? He says, Peter says, I'm the, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now God says with his own mouth, this is my son. This is the one you will follow. This is the one who is majestic in everything that he does and glorious in every way. He is the one you listen to. He is the one you worship. And so Peter, James, and John are left there staring at Jesus alone, having seen his glory. Now, answer me this. Why does this passage follow the passage we studied last week when Jesus says, whoever wants to come after me, 
Let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Anyone who seeks to save his life will lose it. Anyone who loses his life for my sake will save it, will find it. Why in the world does this passage follow that? We know they're connected because as I was reading last week, it feels kind of out of place. Look at verse 27. Actually, let me read 26 so you get the little, it feels like a bump in the road. Verse 26. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Now he's talking about the second coming. The coming of Jesus, the glory of Jesus. Verse 27, but I tell you truly, there are some standing here who won't taste death until they see the kingdom of God. It was weird to me when I read it. Like, it doesn't make sense. And then he follows it up with the transfiguration. Follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross daily, don't be ashamed of me, lose your life on this earth so that you can gain it in the life to come. Jesus is going to come back in all of his glory. There are some of you right now who will not taste death before you see my glory and now the transfiguration happens. What's the connection? How is this supposed to help you and I sacrifice and follow Jesus? How is that supposed to happen? What's the answer? Hear it with everything you have. The beauty is worth the sacrifice. Why is the transfiguration here following a call to deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow Jesus? It's because Jesus is worth it. He's worth it. He's worth every bit of sacrifice. He's worth every bit of trial. He's worth every bit of pain. Jesus is worth it. The curtain was pulled back on the glory of Jesus for Peter, James, and John so that they would know Jesus is worth it. And when Peter, towards the end of the Gospels, is told, Peter, you will die for following me. You will die for following me. And then when John starts running towards him and says, well, what about that guy? Is he going to die too? Because I don't want to kind of be alone in this gig. And he says, What's it to you what happens to him? You follow me, Peter. Everything is meant to point back to this moment to say Jesus is worth it. No matter the end result on this earth, Jesus is worth it. And how do I know that's what he's saying? Because Peter tells us with his own mouth in 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, listen to Peter describe this moment right here in Luke chapter 9. Listen to him describe it. He says this, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths. So there were some saying that Jesus is not going to come back. And he's saying, we're not following that myth. We know that Jesus is coming back, and here's how I know it. When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ... But we were eyewitnesses of his, say the word, majesty. How does he describe seeing what he saw on that day? It was majestic. When I looked at Jesus, the word to describe that moment was majesty. 
Peter goes on, For when we received honor and glory from God the Father, that honor of being able to see Jesus in his glory, the voice was born to him by the, what's those two next two words? Majestic glory. The description of God as majestic glory. Stay with me. And here's what majestic glory said. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. Do you see? He's talking about what we just studied. Peter's recollection is that I saw the majesty of Jesus. I saw his glory brighter than any glory ever. And when I heard the voice of God, I could only describe it as majestic glory. And it was that moment that said it is worth it. It is worth every bit of sacrifice. It is worth every bit of anything I could give it. He is sure. I heard his voice. He is majestic. He is glorious. What does that mean? I just had to stop and think on those two words. What does it mean for something to be majestically glorious? I guarantee you probably haven't used either one of those words this week. Or if you have, they have kind of not been necessarily about God and thinking on it like this. What does it mean that he is majestic glory? He is the supreme goodness. Majestic glory. It is the supreme goodness of his greatness, the splendor of his unmatched beauty, the shocking satisfaction of his infinite worth, the splendid, untainted radiance of his character and power and authority and actions. And it struck me so hard how I settle for so little. I don't crave to go after that. I crave to go after secondary things. So often. I read and I judge Israel when they forget God and when they don't go after him with all their might. And yet I'm no different than Israel who sought for a calf they could touch rather than a Christ they could trust. There is no one greater than Jesus. There's no one purer than him. There is no one more trustworthy. There is no one who is always right and always has your best interest in mind like he does. In every sense that you have ever had stimulated in your life, every ounce of enjoyment, every rush of euphoria is but a hair's width of the full whole being peace and joy you will experience for eternity when you are with him, the majestic glory. Just think of what you might experience this week. The wind that blows, the foods that you might taste. Some of you might go on vacation and you might see the extensive expansiveness of the oceans. No experience you will have on this earth will compare to majestic glory. It is short like this. It is so small you can barely see it. And everything is meant to open your eyes to say, that's just a taste. Oh, what it is that is coming. Peter saw it with his eyes. And he said, it's not a sacrifice when I've seen beauty. The beauty is worth the sacrifice. It's worth it for everything we have. And we give ourselves for things that are too little. And we need to repent.
We need to repent for our lazy, poor thought through, heart surrendering to things that will break, things that will let us down, people that will change their minds, our fickle feelings, we being confused in judgment. We need to repent for surrendering our hearts to people, to our own thoughts, to things nothing even rivals his goodness, his purity, his rightness, his attention, his care, his faithfulness, and his presence. And yet we question him all the time. Do you feel out of place yet? Do you feel like the milk that's been spilled in that stream just shouldn't be there? How does the transcendent, majestic glory have anything to do with me? Who at times would trade him in for a phone. For a good day at the beach. I forget him so much. And he is so patient. Do you feel out of place? When he says, all that I am is yours. I am for you. And I love you. And I proved it on the cross by giving my son for you. Do you feel the disjointedness? That's not what was supposed to be. And yet his love says, that's what I give to you. Because I care for you. I love you. We question him. We question his resourcefulness and his goodness. And listen to what Spurgeon says. When Spurgeon describes God's vast glory, his immeasurable worth, his matchless goodness, and how he lavishes that on sinners like us, listen to what he says. Although a tithe, that's 10%, although 10% of his possessions would have made a universe of angels rich beyond all thought, yet he was not content until he had given us all that he had. It would have been surprising grace if he would allow us to eat crumbs of his bounty beneath the table of his mercy, but he will do nothing by halves. He doesn't half his grace. He makes us sit with him and share the entire feast. Had he given us a small pension from his kingly coffers, that's where they stored their money, we should have had cause to love him eternally. But no, he will have his bride, that is the church, and anyone who trusts in him as rich as himself, And he will not have a glory or a grace in which she, the church, shall not share with him. Just the smallest fraction of his amazing, majestic glory would satisfy us for all eternity. And yet he says, I'm withholding nothing from you. I love you with every fiber of my being. You will be co-heirs with me. You will inherit everything. I fight for you when no one else will fight for you. A bruised reed I will not break. That little wick that looks like that that smoke is about to dissipate altogether, I will not let it be quenched. I will continue to feed it with myself until it is a bursting flame. 
I will give everything that I am for you. I'll give my only son that you might have life and your sins might be forgiven and you might know how to deal with the shame and guilt that you wallow in. No need to blame anyone else. You and I are guilty, but you and I are loved. And until you can say that, you haven't grasped majestic glory. You have to be able to say, I am guilty. And you have to be able to be more aware of your own guilt than you are at the finger pointing of everyone else. And you can say, with head held high, I am guilty, but I am loved. That's majestic glory. That's the cross. And so why are these two passages together? Because when Peter saw just a sliver of his glory unveiled for him, he knew the beauty was worth the sacrifice. It was worth it. Friends, do you see this? Do you feel this? This is deeper than going to church. This is deeper than some religious activity. This is about connecting and communing with the living God who promises to meet you wherever you are all the time. It is a relationship. He is calling you when you are at home to be still and know him. He is calling you when you are at work and busy to stop and to pray. He is calling you when you feel desperate to call out to him. He is calling you when you are at the heights of joy to thank him. He is calling you to always press into him because he is always with you and always for you. He is majestic glory. And the fact that any sinner would love him and know him is evidence that his kingdom has come in part. It is broken in into this moment. And that's why he said, some of you won't taste death until the kingdom of God is seen. But some of you might be, it's kind of easy for Peter, isn't it? Like, if I were there with Peter, James, and John, and I saw what he saw, I'd probably be willing to sacrifice my life too. You know something? Peter addresses that for us. Second Peter chapter 1. The same passage I just read. He says this right here. And I'm going to reread real quickly what I just read. So that you can get the whole context. But I want you to be listening for this. What does he say to you and I. Who are like. Easy for Peter because he saw him. What about us. Who don't see him with our eyes. Verse 16. 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter says, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And when we received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, God spoke, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And... We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Some translations say more sure. To which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day 
dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What is the more fully confirmed word than even Peter seeing Jesus eyeball to eyeball? It is the prophetic word of the scriptures that we hold in our hands. Where do we see glory? Where do we see a beauty that is so captivating it leads us to walk into the valley of the shadow of death and fear no evil? Where do we get the energy to love when we feel like not loving and not sacrificing? Where do we get the ability to sacrifice and to put others' needs above our own? The answer is, what glory is going to grip us? Where do we get that glory? It is in the more sure, more fully confirmed word, God's word, the scripture. Pastor John Piper says this about the glory to be found in the word of God. He says, in my case, God has kept me. God held me by his glory, by revealing his glory to my heart year after year so that other glories would not lure me away. This he has done through his, say it, word. For me, the glory of God and the word of God are inseparable. Why don't we read that sentence together? For me, the glory of God and the word of God are inseparable. I have no sure sight of God's glory except through his word. The word mediates the glory and the glory confirms the word. You've got a sure word. You have a feast before you morning by morning to behold glory. And so, there is no greater majesty. There is no greater glory than the glory that is the majestic glory, the glory of the person of Jesus Christ, the one who promises he will come again, the one that Peter saw with his eyes, the voice that Peter heard, who is the majestic glory, who said, listen to my son and follow him with your life. So let's apply it. Let's apply it. We can behold his glory. His beauty is worth the sacrifice. What does it look like to apply it in the here and now while we wait to see him face to face? Well, Jesus opens the door for us and says, this is what it looks like to be on Jesus' kingdom mission while you await for Jesus' second return when you will see him face to face. So do you get it? Live in light of that day. It's going to happen. What does it look like now to live in light of that day? Real quickly, let me tell you a story that highlights point two. Remember, I told you the first one was long. It's foundational. These are just application points, okay? That is majesty on display amidst weakness. Look at the weakness. Verse 27. 37, sorry. On the next day when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met. 
So now Peter is faced with, how in the world do I apply what I just saw? (laughs) How in the world do I handle what I just beheld? Verse 38, and right off the bat, they encounter real life. They encounter pain and weakness. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, teacher, I beg you. You hear the desperation there? It's because his only son, his only son is experiencing this. Listen to this. Verse 39. Jesus, behold, a spirit seizes my only child and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him. And will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples, but they couldn't do anything with it. And Jesus answered, Oh, you faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Meaning, they could have done something about it. Bring your son here. Verse 42, while he was coming, it was like in living color. Demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus, with a word, that's what rebuke means. With a word, rebuked the unclean spirit, and the boy was healed. And gave him back to his father. In verse 43, all were astonished at what? Say it out loud. The majesty of God. Do you see the connection? Peter says, when I saw Jesus face to face, when I heard that voice from heaven, that was majestic glory. Now what do I do with beholding such a thing? I get into the lives of people. I'm walking a road of love, and when I encounter weakness, that is the spot where strength and majesty can be on display. And Jesus is looking over here and he's saying, followers, why didn't you do something? You could have shown off my majesty by praying, by healing, by coming near. This was a unique time. I understand that. We can't just heal at any moment now in these days. I get that. But you understand the image that he's putting forth. Followers, you could have displayed my majesty. I'm not going to be with you forever. So he heals. He draws near to the weak, the poor, the hurting, the sick. In order that his majesty might be on display. This is why Jesus is passionate for us to have a keen eye towards the poor. Towards the hurting. Towards the financially destitute. Towards the weak. Because his people are to be in and among and even experience weakness. Because it is there we see his majesty on display. It's there we see majesty on display. When weakness is met, Jesus is seen. That's the argument. They saw majesty. Why is there weakness in the world? Because when people dive in and among weakness, when it is for the glory of God, people can see the majesty of God. So I want us to see two things as application. One, what are you going after and why? And two, 
How are you as a follower of Jesus? Don't compare yourself. Hear me. Do not compare yourself to anyone else. The question is not how you are you like someone else. But the question is how are you following the voice of Jesus? How are you obeying that he wants you to be in and among weakness? So what are you going after and why? And how are you in and among weakness? That is the poor, the sick, the hurting. The Lord has really struck me about my ambition. He has struck me for why I'm going after what I'm going after. My parents have instilled in me hard work. And in our society, when you work hard, you can get a lot of praise. Because many times, if you work hard, you can produce. So subtly, what that began to feed in me was work hard so that I would get that affirmation because it really does feel good. Working hard is a wonderful thing. It images forth a great God who tirelessly works for us, serves us, cares for us. But here was the image that God gave me as I was praying and he was walking me through a journey of repentance of why am I doing what I'm doing? Why did Jesus do what he did right here? It was so that all would stand astonished at what? The majesty of God. Why do I do what I do? Is it so that people would stand astonished at the majesty of God or at the brilliance of Sean? Here was the image. The image was, I was fighting so hard to build a wall. And I really wanted God to build the wall and I wanted him to build a beautiful wall. But here's what I wanted deep down. I wanted to have my brick as a capstone at the top. And I wanted my name etched on the outside. Or I wanted my brick, my contribution to what God was doing as the cornerstone for that wall. That if I were pulled out, the whole wall would crumble. And God pressed in on my heart and said, are you okay with just being a brick on the wall? And your name not being anywhere on it. But are you okay. With fading into history. And no one ever remembering your name. But whatever you touched. What they did remember. Was my name etched all over the wall. And they remembered the majesty of God. Are you okay with that? And I fall on my face and I weep and I say, God, make me okay with that. Make that my ambition. Make that my aim. Because when that's my aim, it is so astounding how much more secure, how much more joy, how much more peace and contentment I have when my aim is his fame and not my own. Because when my aim is my fame, there's only one person who has that agenda, and it's me. And that means there's only one person that can hold up that wall, and it's me. 
And it's really tiring to try to hold up that wall. And God says, when we're working as a family towards the majesty of God is my agenda, that's something that I sustain. And you will never be alone. And the burden will be light and not heavy. Why do you do what you do? Jesus did it for the majesty of God. Application number two. How are you in and among? How are you in and among weakness? How are you among the poor? Why does he do that? Why does he say that is what we need to be about? Why does he talk that way throughout the book of Luke that we must touch the poor? He doesn't give us an amount he doesn't give us a time frame. He doesn't say, oh, you've got to be as intent as your neighbor. It is just your life has to have an imprint of I am in and among weakness. And then you must follow Jesus as you go. Why does he do that? It is because when there is weakness, the fertile flower of God's strength begins to shoot forth. Friends, some of you Work in professions that are in and among weakness. Some of you are nurses or doctors or you are in and among those who are really sick. Some of you are counselors and you are walking alongside deep pain. I want to hold out for you what a privilege it is that you are there. Because in those moments you are reminded of two things. One is how desperate you are for God's grace. And two, whenever you see sickness, God wants us near those people because it reminds us of the condition of the human heart, the condition of my heart and your heart. When you see the lame, that's the heart. When you see that sin hurts, sin hurts. It hurts you. It hurts others. It debilitates. Sin grieves. Sin confuses. You want it to stop just like you want all pain to stop, but you don't know how. Sin sickens. Sin leaves you helpless and lame. It makes you weak. It leaves you emotionally bankrupt and writhing in pain. It leaves you 100% in need of a healer, in need of a Savior. That's why God wants you near that 3D movie. Near the movie of weakness and poverty and difficulty. Because when you're there, you understand the dangers of sin. And in so doing, you understand the majesty of a Savior. But physical weakness is not the only view. Physical weakness is meant to be a window through what is the core need of every human soul. And that's not physical relief. That is forgiveness of sins. And so Jesus says in verse 43, but while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, it's almost like, but don't forget. Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about the saying, what does Jesus press in upon him? The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. He wants them to look at the majesty of the cross. The cross is the solution for our sin sickness. That's why the cross. Jesus died so that we would have an identity apart from our performance. Jesus died so that we would find an acceptance apart from any earthly relationship. Jesus died for our sins so that we would know what to do with guilt and shame. So that we could be forgiven. And that sinners like ourselves could be at the feet of majestic glory. And he before you 100% withholding nothing from you. Only because of the cross. 
And so when he looks at you and he says, deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me, you're able to say, I can do this because the beauty is worth the sacrifice. I can do this because he sacrificed in my place on the cross and I have been forgiven much. I can be in and among the weak. I can love because it's there that his majesty can be my ambition and his majesty will be seen. Let's pray. Father, I ask that we long for the majesty of your coming glory and I ask that we would make it our ambition to display your majesty among the weak, the poor, the sick, the hurting. And that, Father, we would never make that an end in itself, but we would see everything through the lenses of the cross. So, Father, please protect us from being indifferent to sin. Protect us from being indifferent to the hurts around us. And with laser focus, may we listen to Jesus' words, reading his word in the scriptures, and obeying him as he calls us to do. And may we walk in a life of love. Loving our neighbor. Asking for people to trust in Christ and repent of sins. While we at the same time sit still before your feet and also live a life of love. Father, please come. Come and change us that we might want it to be our ambition to behold and to sit at the feet of majestic glory and live for that beauty because it's worth it. Teach us in these moments, I pray.